Indeedy. Welcome back to the Up Full Life Podcast. And I'm your host, B. Getz. Happy New Year. It's 2019. And we are so grateful to have made it. Not only to 2019, but to episode 8 of the Up Full Life Podcast. And we're going to dive right in. But before we do that, we're going to take a moment just to shout out, give thanks to uh, the Disc Jam Music Festival, discjammusicfestival.com. This festival is a grassroots organization, uh, family-owned business, uh, going for nearly a decade now, and... uh, Looking forward to some promotional opportunities between the Upful Life and Disc Jam Music Festival. But for starters, I just wanted to start this year and this episode with a thank you to Tony and Disc Jam Music Festival for consistently showing independent festival promoters how it's done. Uh, Always a tasty and diverse lineup across the genres in an idyllic small town setting in uh, the Northeast steventown new york is the location it's a new england event if you will and a strong one at that you'll hear more including a lineup announcement and any other important information uh, through various up for life media channels uh, elsewhere and of course here on the up for life podcast so yeah really stoked and honored to be uh, working with Disc Jam Music Festival, and we hope to be able to, uh, you know, make some folks better aware of events like this one and others that are going on here in the States and beyond, because festival culture is a big part of uh, my professional life and my personal journey, and uh, I am stoked whenever I can get involved in an organization or an event that is not uh, beholden to corporate interests and is of the people if you will tony's one of those guys just jam music festival is one of those events so uh, up for life is more than uh, pleased to be on board yeah we had to take a week off from uh or every other week schedule just because of the madness that takes place around Christmas through the new year, uh, particularly in the music world and music industry and so forth. Uh, When you're covering live music, there's just so much action between the 26th and the 1st. 
and that was uh, an understatement this particular year um here in the bay area we just had myriad options and uh, i went out more than i really intended to just because the schedule was so good so before we get to today's guest which is uh, ryan rising of the permaculture action network just going to kind of go through a little bit of this past week's activities out here in the bay area it was kind of cold this week and kept pretty late hours so have a bit of the sniffles if you hear it in my voice please excuse um we started things off um in berkeley on the 27th with Closey and goop steppa two bright young and talented producers uh, the event was put on by our friends at Euphonic Conceptions, along with Wormhole Entertainment. It was at the UC Theater in Berkeley, which has been site of some really fantastic shows the past few months, uh, going back to uh, when we saw Lettuce there in September. Um, so yeah, uh, Goop Steppa in particular, very impressive. We've always been a big Goop house here at Up for Life, and uh, that was only cemented and solidified with his performance uh, the set that he played opening for Closey uh, on the 27th. And Closey was the headliner. She sold out the room and uh, is touring on the heels of her most recent full-length LP titled Evasion. And uh, Closey's got a great team behind her. She's a wonderful spirit and uh, creates music really unlike anything else that's happening out there. So... That's how we kicked off that week. Um, I want to say special thanks to Cole at the Pivotal Agency for making sure that that happened for Up for Life. And you can check out uh, a review of mine, a short uh, sort of blurb on the evening. Live for live music. Now, uh, the next night was a really difficult call because you had carl denson's 60th 63rd birthday extravaganza going on at the fillmore which we would attend on the next evening because we could not deny the empress badu who appeared at the warfield for the first time since i think 2011 now we had caught and covered badu on valentine's day here in san francisco last year and the same this year i'm not sure uh the review will probably be out a day or two after this podcast uh, airs. So, yeah, what can I say uh, that I'm not going to say in the article? Uh, other than Badu is a special kind of performer, uh, really transcendent of her generation, and heavy on the improv, heavy on the vibe. Most Deaf came out. That was probably the most notable thing that took place. Um Akin to his appearance at her birthday show in Dallas earlier this year, he came out, he kicked the freestyle over her song, The Healer, or towards the end of that song, which is one of my, if not my favorite song of hers in her live repertoire. And most came out and blessed it up. And then they sagged, like they did on the birthday show, into his timeless track, Umi Says, which was like full theater sing-along, really phenomenal moment to be a part of. And, uh, yeah, like, the set was similar to 
the show at the Armory on Valentine's Day, but not identical. Although she did kind of go on her Baduism just turned 21 rant again. But that was cool, and it was worth hearing a second time, uh, just because that album really does stand the test of time. And she leaned heavily on her first couple of records, Mama's Gun and Baduism. And I'll just say that I think her, uh, you know, taking the stage late and then letting her band rock for 20 minutes and then opening with Hello, Hello, and then Out of My Mind, it's all very slow, vibey um, progression into her show, which frustrates some folks who want to show up, pay their ticket, walk in the door, and be performed for. And while that's fine in some circles, that is not Miss Erica Badu a.k.a. Cerebellum, a.k.a. Badu Oblongata, a.k.a. Low Down Loretta Brown, etc. Yeah, she don't play that. So she took her time getting on stage. She allowed her band to warm up. She sang a couple slow jams. The floor loosened up considerably. And then shit was on. And it was a thrilling ride, indeed. So, shout out Erica Badu, the one and only. And, you know, few artists I put in front of her in terms of if there were shows happening that night uh, in town. And she won out against a stacked uh, calendar. Now, uh, the next night, uh, we went over to the Carl Denson Tiny Universe show, uh, the second night of his 63rd birthday. Also, which I have a short review dropping in the next couple of days and on Live for Live Music. Now, uh, Denson, well, the night before, notably local and international hero, legend, guitar god Carlos Santana sat in with opening band Dumpster Funk, a New Orleans institution themselves. Um, the, Tony Hall is sat in and subbed for Chris Stillwell, the bass player of Carl D. So Dumpster Funk opening for Carl is is not unusual. But Carlos Santana sitting in unannounced with Dumpster and not the headliner? Unusual. Um, I'm sure there's footage floating around. I've seen a few photographs and had a word with uh, Dumpster Funk's manager John Phillips of Silverback just about how amazing that was in a true uh display of how stacked that night of music was not only was ayat badu when santana played with dumpster but dumpster's own manager had jetted over to berkeley to freight and salvage for zigaboo modalist um 70th birthday bash which featured a set of Zig playing with his meters bandmate, the bass playing uh, Icon and George Porter Jr. So, yeah, John Phillips missed Santana with Dumpster Funk too, so I didn't feel so bad. But anyway, we went the next night, and uh, hyperbole aside, this was the best Carl Denson's Tiny Universe show I had seen it in a damn long time, and... Uh, before I was the uh, number two lettuce fan in the world, uh, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe was my favorite band. 
particularly during the time period that fish was not active. And I went on runs with them for up and down the East Coast and High Sierra, New Orleans, Chicago. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Denson, also with the Grey Boys and in other projects as well, but mostly with the Tiny Universe. And I've written about them extensively and have great relationships with the band. And while I've always enjoyed their performances, uh, they didn't really resonate with me like they used to. Partly because I'm, you know, into a lot of other music these days um, in that sort of vein. And, you know, of course, Lettuce is my favorite band, unequivocally. Um, but, you know, they didn't really start coming back into the zeitgeist until they released Rage in 2008 and started playing Bear Creek every year and Jazz Fest again every year or the nightclubs during Jazz Fest. Uh, I digress. Anyway, Denson, uh, I'd always go see him whenever he came to town. He's my boy. He's, his, uh, his band are friends of mine. I'm proud to call DJ Williams, Chris Littlefield, Dave Veith, pals, you know, in real life. But that said, you know, I had uh, somewhat lost my affinity for them in the unconditional anything they do is gold. Um, but... You know, I had to enjoy eating crow or placing my foot in my mouth, and I did because Carl brought a all-timer, really, uh, definitely for this era of the band. Uh, Z Trip sat in for an extended segment. So did uh, Charlie Tuna came out and kicked a freestyle over or an arrangement, whatever it was, over. Uh, Lenny Kravitz straight cold player break. I mean, that was like custom built for me. I was so grateful. And uh, like I said, Z Trip came out and did an extended segment where he was like scratching in DJ Grey Boy Roughneck Jazz from the first Grey Boy solo album, which is why they're called the Grey Boy All Stars and how Carl D sort of got folded into this world that we know him from now um, was because of the Grey Boy sessions. And the first song on freestyling is Roughneck Jazz, and San Diego's Z Trip uh, had to get busy on that tip, I guess, and uh, really won my heart with that nugget. But the biggest thing of the night was, uh, for this guy, was when they played Groove On. Groove On's a song that's been on the shelf for a long time, and it's the song that gave me my personal mojo, maybe more than any other song. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to put into words, but I, I tried in my piece about the show, but it was a very special, uh, rendition of the song and bringing it back and hearing that guitar riff and hearing Carl give his little lecture at the beginning of the song about how you got to get yourself right, looking good, smelling good, hair good, the right outfit, smelling just right, all that. I heard him say it a thousand times back in the day, but since the song's been on the shelf, it's been a long time since I heard that from Carl D. And when he started kicking that rap, if you will, and they dipped into Groove On, my, my eyes welled up with tears and I danced like uh, there was no tomorrow. So thanks to Carl Denson, happy birthday, and to the Tiny Universe for that uh, fantastic throwback. And I hope to hear more of the old jams like that in the coming uh, months. And at Jazz Fest, of course. And we'll be back with more Carl Denson uh, at the end of the show with the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, which will be Groove On. 
uh, from the glory days in the early 2000s. But we'll get to that at the end of the show. Um, I know folks are probably anxious for me to get to the uh, interview portion of the show, and I shall do that shortly. First, I just wanted to thank uh, Jeff Franca from Thievery Corporation. Uh, They played New Year's Eve here at the Masonic, and that's how I rang in the new year. But before that, I enjoyed a a dim sum lunch in San Francisco with Jeff and other members of the band and their touring party. And uh, then we retired to the hotel and I interviewed Jeff one-on-one for a future episode of the Up Full Life podcast. So thanks, Jeff, for uh, the interview and for having me out to the show. It was a great show, very celebratory way to ring in 2019. Then we uh, did our best to hustle over the bridge back to the East Bay through some gnarly traffic uh, in time for the end of the Coalesce uh, party with Comic- Cosmic Synergy. Uh, that, that was an event that took place over three days, 29-30-31, headlined by Tipper. And Tipper also played a sunrise set to close the event on the morning of the 1st, and that's where we were headed. So after Thievery, my partner Alicia, who had to work earlier in the evening, picked me up from the Thievery show, and then we went to catch the end of Blue Tech, and then finally uh, the tipper set in the morning at sunrise, which was otherworldly, predictably, next level. And uh, proud to say that I saw it and the sun come up that morning on the banks of the San Francisco Bay, of clear head and sound mind as my first sober New Year's Eve other than the year I was incarcerated for. Um, I can't recall really the last time that I was uh, sober on New Year's Eve and while I enjoyed a cocktail at one point. um, Nonetheless, it felt great on the first to take a quick cat nap, wake up and not be destroyed to start the year for a change. So thanks to Cosmic Synergy, Zeke and my man Mike Sisman and Becca Sue and all the f- great folks behind Cosmic Synergy and the Coalesce event. And thanks to Dave Tipper for once again delivering something very uh, intimately special and personal for every person who was uh, lucky enough to be in the building. So that's how uh, New Year's week panned out for the Upful Life. You can check out a bunch of stories about those shows online. Check it out. Uh, Closey Goopstepa review, Badu review, soon the Carl review will drop. And uh, I'm not sure I'm going to write about New Year's Eve, but I also have a lengthy reflection on the 18 favorite albums of 2018. I know I mentioned it on the pod earlier. It dropped during the week off. Um, and yeah, Thank you for everyone who has messaged me or contacted me in regards to that article. Really proud all the artists that were sharing it and celebrating it. Really felt great. So, uh, yeah, Up Full Life's 18 favorite albums of 2018. We've got special guest writers on a couple of the albums. Uh, Matt Kelling, Bombastic from the OK Player Squad. Um, Something in the Water is the name of his blog, and he gives us uh, the internet uh, Hive Mind album review and then Zach Friedman, resident Wolfpeck aficionado, uh, kicks down the Mac Miller swimming review, which is a touching eulogy to the dearly departed Mac Miller. So that's what you can check out from Up Full Life on the media front. And as for today's interview, we'll move into that now. Um, it was an honor 
and a privilege to speak with Ryan Rising of the Permaculture Action Network. Ryan is someone who I first encountered uh, through the work that Permaculture Action Network was doing with the Polish ambassador around 2014. And um, he was at Envision Festival my first year. He was uh, often offering workshops and the different educational endeavors with the Permaculture Action Network, as well as Action Days in tandem with Polish's tour and other artists like Rising Appalachia. He's worked extensively uh, with Permaculture Action Network and musicians. Uh, and I'll let him describe it in the interview, but uh, I've been on, uh, you know, aware of Ryan's work, and he's been on my radar since 2014, and we often talk music stuff, and I seek his counsel on an issue or two if I'm grappling with uh, something that I think he is uh, knowledgeable or learned, I'll inquire as to his take. He's always sharing very poignant and... uh, often controversial um, articles about resistance and he hates to use the word activism so I won't but you know he's just been a important guy in the culture and he has a lot of relationships and he talks about them and he talks about his experiences with Occupy he talks about his experiences uh, down in Mexico with the Zapatistas we talk about the connection with there with Rage Against the Machine. and It's just a very profound and revealing conversation. We also get into some good music stuff, talk punk rock and, and of course, activism and stuff with... Oops, there I said it. Um, but we talk about the punk rock uh, ethos and a sort of a social consciousness attached to uh, early punk and early hip-hop and that symbiotic relationship. And then we just get into hip-hop. We get into... Uh, drum and bass which is his you know love and of course we talk a bit about the aforementioned dave tipper so yeah there you have it uh ryan rising permaculture action network uh, live and direct from his backyard in berkeley california the last week of december he's got a big event here uh, that he talks about on october excuse me on january 20 january 20 of 2019 here in Oakland, uh, Permaculture Action Day, where you can find more about that um, on the website, Permaculture Action Network. Check them out. And now you'll hear from my friend, the community organizer and permaculture educator, Mr. Ryan Rising. You're listening to the Upful Life Podcast with your host, B. Getz. Everything you see is just a thought manifested But before you had a chance to know that You got arrested and it all seems clear to you now You can breathe, it was different when you couldn't see the forest for the trees If you follow your dreams, you can't accomplish anything If you always do your best, then your destiny is king of the world
right, and we're live here in Berkeley, California. This is B. Getz, and you're listening to the Up Full Life podcast. And I am lucky to be here with a community organizer and a permaculture educator, Ryan Rising. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Ryan. Thanks for coming to visit. Yeah, what an amazing uh, crib and pad that you've got here in the, you know, just a few steps off the concrete jungle. Thanks. Uh, we've got some chickens, and we're sitting in this beautiful garden, and the sun is shining. Our buddy Zach is in town. So, uh, yeah, let's get to it. Uh, you've got a, a event coming up with the Permaculture Action Network this January 20 here in the Bay Area. Let the folks know a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, it's exciting because uh, I live in the Bay Area and I've been organizing here locally for about seven, eight years. But we rarely get to do Permaculture Action Days here, um, largely there across the country. For example, we were just on a tour with Rising Appalachia and we did action days in Nashville, New Orleans, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Detroit, Chicago. But it's rare that we actually get to do stuff in the Bay, almost because the Bay is so oversaturated that it only makes sense to do it when we get a really special opportunity. And um, this January 20th, we're doing a permaculture action day in Oakland. Um, and we're going to be doing it at the Sagorate Land Trust site, uh, which is also a site run by Planting Justice. And I can talk about those two organizations in a moment. But essentially, we're inviting everyone to come out and get their hands in the dirt with a bunch of hands-on projects, um, workshops, skill shares, music, food all day long. So that's January 20th. You can find the information on permacultureaction.org. But uh, Sagorate. I'm going to say is the organization that I kind of feel the most like honored to have the opportunity to work with in the last four or five years of doing this. Um, Sigorate is a indigenous women-led land trust um, here in the Bay Area. So a land trust is essentially an organization that can hold land as a nonprofit for a specific use, making sure that that land doesn't get sold to you know the market, like sold at market rate for another purpose. So if I put a piece of land into a land trust for the purpose of urban farming. Um, even if it changes owners and someone else runs it and then someone else manages it later down the line, I know it's not going to be just sold to like Walmart and have a Walmart built on it at some point. It keeps it out of the, the market in that way. Um, so Sigorate is kind of using the land trust model in order to return land to indigenous stewardship. So the Ohlone people are the indigenous people of the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. And these two women are Ohlone women who started it, uh, Karina Gold and Janella. And they are basically accepting land being given to them to put legally into the ownership of the land trust. And therefore, materially and culturally, the land's being returned to Ohlone stewardship. Um, so the first piece of land that they were given is part of the Planting Justice Nursery. And they're going to be building the first ceremonial arbor that the Ohlone people have had on Ohlone land in the last 250 years on this site. So even just that is like an incredible thing to think about. I think most of us don't acknowledge these things. They don't even cross our minds. I know I didn't until I was right there, like looking at the humongous logs that they were about to like put in the ground to be the, the pillars of this ceremonial arbor. But the Ohlone people who are indigenous to the SF Bay area, they haven't had a ceremonial arbor on this land in over 250 years. And so they're gonna be building the first one um, that they've had in that long um, on this site. And so the larger site is Planting Justice's Nursery. Planting Justice is an organization that does permaculture designs and installs for homes around the Bay Area, things like rainwater catchment systems, perennial gardens, chicken coops, um, cob ovens, natural buildings. So they do these design and installs, but they have a economic justice model, so to speak, on the front end and the back end. 
On the back end, they're hiring all formerly incarcerated people, mostly formerly incarcerated men of color, at a starting wage of 1850 an hour, like a family supporting wage. Right. And on the front end, for every three permaculture design and installs they do for private homes around the Bay that they get paid to do, they do one for a family that could never afford such a thing. Um, so on top of that, they started a nursery in East Oakland on 105th. Um, and it is, it's a 40,000 tree nursery. I think it's the largest organic nut, berry, and fruit nursery in California now. Um, so they have their staff running that nursery and they decided to give a quarter acre of the land that they crowdfunded for to the Segorate Land Trust. And that was the first piece of land that this indigenous women led land trust got given back to Ohlone stewardship. And then another one followed around like 30th in Oakland and there are more in the works. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. How did you connect with uh, Segorate? Yeah. So we're connected to them through our primary partner in this action day, which is led to life. Um, and Led to Life is a new project that launched in April of 2018 in Atlanta. And we did an action day with them out there. And essentially what we did was we melted down 50 guns into 50 shovels to commemorate 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Um, and we used those shovels to plant 50 trees at sites of violence and sacred sites around Atlanta. So what that really looked like was actually working with mothers who like came when we melted down these guns to an empty lot in the middle of Atlanta at night. And we had this big furnace out there and we literally melted down guns and we watched like the red molten metal fill up these um, forms for the shovels, for the handles of these shovels. And we built shovels from that metal. And then throughout the next few days, we actually planted trees where a lot of these mothers' kids were killed, either by police or by other people um, in the community. So these mothers are there watching these guns being melted down. They're there planting trees where their sons and daughters or children were actually killed. Um, and in some cases, even like putting soil from lynching sites into the ground with these trees to call attention to like, you know, the long legacy of racial oppression here in the United States and how like, you know, the incarceral system and things like this are still a part of that ongoing tendency. Um, Note to self, somebody needs to do a story on this. Yeah. I mean, given the tenor of violence with people of color and the yeah. police. Yeah, I it's mean, a huge thing. Yeah, it's just a really beautiful healing experience, obviously, for these women, but it could translate to people who have experienced this all over the country. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear in the podcast and just speak really honestly, like for us, this isn't a non-violence thing it's not about like gun control or anything like that for us it's about the symbolic intention and the material um like art of actually transforming these guns into shovels planting trees like using these tools of violence to become tools of regeneration and the process that those mothers and the community at large goes through like transforming those material objects from one thing into another and like watching the real effects that um that has for real people that participated in it, like everything from, you know, women like crying the tears, you know, into the ground to water those trees, like while we're planting them. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, we did a big permaculture action day out there. So we did that at Mina's farm. Philomena is a woman um, from an island off the coast of Africa who moved to Atlanta and she has a huge backyard farm in the middle of Atlanta. And so she's got a big greenhouse and we installed at the action day, like a rainwater catchment system 
a new garden bed. We inoculated a bunch of mushrooms through a workshop where everyone learned how to inoculate mushrooms. Um, rebuilt the greenhouse, like built a retaining wall on her stream, which runs through her backyard. Um, planted a bunch of trees with the shovels made from the melted down guns. Uh, so we did this big action day with Lead to Life out there and it was part of like a multi-day series where like one day was the ceremony where we melted the guns down into the shovels and the next day was the action day and then the next day was when we went out to all these different sites where kids were killed and planted these trees. So now this is the sister project to that launch in Atlanta. We're doing it in Oakland. So beyond working with Segorate and Planting Justice, um, we're working with Lead to Life to melt a bunch of guns down into shovels in Oakland and that will be following the People's March to reclaim the radical legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. which happens on the 21st. So it's going to be a big weekend in the Bay Area because the 19th is the Women's March. That's not something we're associated with but it's happening. The 20th is the Action Day, January 20th. And then January 21st is going to be the People's March um, with APTP and we're gonna be ending that with the big ceremony in the middle of Oscar Grant Plaza, downtown Oakland, where we're gonna be melting down guns into shovels um, with people who've been affected by gun violence. Yeah. That's in the window of time when my mom will be out here visiting the Bay, so that's good info. I'm sure she'll be interested in, in some of that, the Women's March, the, uh, the melting of the guns. I'm trying to get that's, my mom out here too for that. Yeah, I mean, that's, she'll yeah. just happen to be here, so. Uh, awesome. Yeah, we're gonna definitely get in your ear about that. So you've been talking a lot about action days, and that's actually how I came to find out about you and the work that you do with the Permaculture Action Network. And I've been uh, privileged to participate in four, um, one not far from here, and I believe it's the Guild Tract Farm, mm -hmm. and then uh, um, New Orleans with Rising Appalachia during Jazz Fest one year, mm -hmm. and also up in Nevada City at a school, elementary school. That was our first one yep. ever. And then uh, another one that you weren't affiliated with at Swanee, uh, Purple Hatter's Ball. Right. So, yeah, I've you know, learned a lot and really experienced a lot. Uh, and every action day is different. If people ask me, like, what's it about, you know, and aside from the sort of permaculture roots, it's, it's just doing shit that needs to be done, right, depending on wherever you are. So it's not like a uniform process. Mm -hmm. But what are you looking for when you're trying to uh, identify something that's worthy of that sort of effort. Yeah, so we um, often we're looking for sites that are more or less in the commons, right? So it doesn't mean that we don't consider everything. We think it's all important, including this backyard farm we're sitting in right now, like four or five people eat from this. Not the biggest deal to like society at large, but it's important nonetheless. Yeah. Um, but we wouldn't prioritize, you know, this backyard farm if it was if it was someone else's, if we have sites that are more in the commons. Uh, so by the commons, we mean sites that are neither like fitting into this dichotomy of public or private, public being the lands that the state or the nation state owns and kind of regulates how you interact with it. No wildcrafting in this forest, right? right? Or private lands, which are owned by individuals or corporations and often are like strip mined and, you know, polluted and all kinds of things. And the commons escapes that dichotomy and it says like, there should be land and space and we are creating land and space that is commonly accessible and collectively managed and we can figure out how to make decisions around that land without the state telling us how to do so. Um, and so we look for sites like that. We look for uh, urban farms that are accessible to the public. We look for um, elementary schools that are installing edible landscaping. We look for low-income housing projects that hundreds of people live at that want to start growing more of the food that the community there eats and catching rainwater and using that to irrigate crops and things like this. Um, we also look for educational sites where places that people are going to learn a lot from. Um, 
And we often try to partner with folks that are most affected by like the systems of power that exist. Um, some cases that's people of color, in some cases that's poor people, in some cases that's like Farmers. marginalized urban folks, sometimes that's rural folks that right. don't have, right? It depends, but we try to work with folks that are feeling the effects of these systems of power that are in place the most. Um, and so you hit on something really important a moment ago, which is that we always work like in on the self-determination of the site that we're working with. So we don't ever come in and say, hey, you know, great job y'all, but this is what you need. What you need is a rainwater catchment system and we're gonna do this action day on this day and we're gonna bring these people out and it's gonna benefit y'all a lot. What we say is, you know, what do you need? What do y'all want here? And how can we show up in a way that actually supports what y'all are already doing through your own self-determination? And then we get told, and we can ideate and brainstorm with these sites, but we get told like, these are the projects we most want to install. Um, these are the kind of people we most want to attract. These are the things we'd love to see happen that day. These are the things we don't really want. And then we organize around you know, that direction coming from the people that are stewarding those sites. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I was always curious as to how you, know, you identified where and um, the Permaculture Action Network, maybe explain how that came to be um, because you know I see the name a lot in the music world and stuff and people yeah. often ask me you know just to kind of like brief them on it and it's kind of hard to explain you this group and you touch down in all different parts of the nation and you know when people think of permaculture they think obviously of like agriculture usually first or farming mm -hmm. but you touched on something earlier that I thought was really cool when you're talking about the regenerative nature of melting the guns and making shovels and using the shovels to plant food and that conceptually or like thematically is permaculture too mm -hmm. so what is the permaculture action network and uh you know maybe all the different arenas that that actually informs cool yeah so the permaculture action network is an organization um that primarily partners with cultural events uh usually the shows and concerts of artists or festivals but other cultural events as well uh, to mobilize people from those cultural events to days of direct action where we're creating regenerative systems and common spaces. So what I mean by regenerative systems are things like um, as simple as compost piles and as large as like large multi-plant polycultures that are growing food and medicine and building materials, um, things that are catching and storing water that would otherwise go to the sewer and to like the waste stream. Um, systems that are uh, increasing biodiversity and are like healing some of the damage that's been done, right? This is regenerative. We don't want to just be sustainable and kind of say, hey, how can we sustain like human life on this planet? We actually want to heal some of the damage that's been done and make life better for the many organisms that we share this ecosystem with, right? So- um, And set people up moving forward. Yeah, so essentially that's what we do is we, we go to these cultural events to meet people where they're at and we give them a really clear direct invitation to like come out the next day come out three days later to this action day and what people find is that everything has kind of been put into place so they can really easily plug in which is I think what's really difficult for people who are looking for something to do in this world and kind of have this impetus to act but don't really know where to start and there's no one really opening their arms except kind of big nonprofits that are saying hey you want to volunteer for us like throw on this t-shirt and go do x y and z so what this does it creates like a really open space for people to come in and plug in how they want to and show up as themselves but it's really laid out. So when I say laid out, what I mean is we have skilled facilitators for every single project we're doing that day. We have materials and tools already on site. 
There's a large free community meal throughout the day so people can eat when they're hungry. There's music happening all day, sometimes DJ music, sometimes live music. There's workshops and skill shares on things that are more like idea based as well as things that are more like hands-on like mushroom cultivation or how to build a worm composting bin or something like this um, so people come to these action days and often it's people's first experience with permaculture or community organizing or anything yeah. like that and they're just coming half the time because they went to a concert the night before and people seemed really excited about this thing and the artist that they love was on stage talking about it so they came to check it out and we're talking to a lot of these people like a year later and they've moved into the land trust in their city or they have started working with a food justice organization or they started a guerrilla garden across the street with their friends and what we're finding is that it's a catalyst for people to like become community organizers and actors and like agents of change themselves um, that people are taking this as an opportunity to become part of a broader movement beyond just the single event that they're coming to and i think that's the most effective thing we're doing in addition to just building these systems for these regenerative land projects um, and directly helping people materially who are trying to create spaces that bring about a better future. We're obviously doing that, but more so we're like catalyzing thousands of people to get involved in a movement for a just and regenerative future for the long haul. Yeah. Well, that was a very thoughtful reply, man. Uh, explains a lot. Uh, and you definitely uh, mentioned the way a lot of people, such as myself, found my way to the Permaculture Action Network and Action Days, and that is through musicians. Mm -hmm. Whether it was a campaign on a large scale, or just a mention from the stage, or a Facebook invitation to an event that's attached to a show. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really brilliant because, you know, the foundation of kind of like quote-unquote rock and roll summer of love out here in the Bay Area and just rock music in general was sort of like a socialist or like a social rebellion of the state establishment and a lot of idealism was born from that era which you know was either misappropriated or ran its course and mm -hmm. um, it almost seems like a relic of the past that sort of like uh, anti-establishment and rock music right pop music if you will yeah but this is that in its core essence it's not even like posting bills and like advertising uh or using uh causes to co-op this is like grassroots the artists are often performing as you mentioned at the action days mm -hmm. um and they're involved on a really grassroots level yeah um how does that work like how do you connect with certain artists and uh what does that partnership uh, look like yeah i think what's really cool about that what you're talking about is that we don't have to like run or pretend we're running outside of the world as it exists and try to like create some alternative space somewhere else like we're working with concerts that are booked by booking agents in large company run venues and we're like going into big cities and we're at those venues and we're inviting people out to another space that exists in the real material world where they can create that moment of collective liberation and community that they kind of feel at a show and now that they can create it outside of a show and in a place where there's more time to actually build a relationship with someone where there's more time to actually like learn a skill where they can actually feel like they're using their hands to create something that will exist for the future um, that's permanent to some degree um, but those partnerships with artists are really the key part of what we do you know I've been doing community organizing I've been planning direct actions I've been building permaculture farms and community gardens for years. Um, 
And something feels really special about this. And what's really special about it is that key component of these artist partnerships of having artists that are independently like known and respected for their music who are saying like, yes, like I want to mobilize the people that are coming to my concerts. I want to mobilize the people that are inspired by my music to come and put their hands in the dirt and actually take real action and get involved for the long haul. Um, so it's very like eye to eye kind of, you know, sitting across the table from each other type of partnership. You know, it's us as an independent organization coming to an artist or a band or a festival as an independent organization saying, hey, do you guys want to partner? And do you want to, you know, use the concert or use the festival or use this cultural event to mobilize people to this day of action? Um, and it's kind of that simple. There's a lot of technicalities to it, coordinating social media posts and figuring out, you know, who's going to table at the show and how many people are allowed in this venue and right. are we going to speak from stage or is the artist going to speak from stage and is the artist able to show up to this action day or not? Are they going to play some music or would they rather just get their hands in the dirt and like, you know, build the farm along with everyone else? Right. Um, but it feels really good to have these really clear, you know, horizontal partnerships where we're working alongside one another to make something happen. It doesn't feel like, you know, we're like roping in an artist to our big nonprofit thing right. we already do. It doesn't feel like, oh, we're just kind of like a side piece to this, you know, cultural experience that they're kind of doing just to like make their brand a little bit more right. like social, ecologically conscious. Right. It feels like a real mutual partnership and we have a mutual interest in just trying to use what we have available to us to make the world better and to catalyze change as quickly as we can in a direction we mutually share yeah right on yeah do you find that you run into sort of like red tape a lot with you know you're talking about working with these venues that are often you know attached to corporate behemoths like live nation and stuff mm -hmm. and there's a whole lot of you know bullshit on the you know concert booking touring agenda yeah if you will do you find that and this is a two-part question one do you find it difficult to accomplish things because the way that world works and and the other side of that is as somebody who has really like firm progressive beliefs and you know puts their money in their action where their mouth is is it hard to in essence do business with uh, maybe uh, businesses or mm -hmm. companies or corporations that are like part and parcel of the quote problem yeah um, and how do you navigate that? Yeah, it can be like there are definitely times when we're working with a festival or we're working with, you know, even a manager of a band who doesn't really know what the band's all about and what they want to do and isn't privy to the conversations we've had directly with the band. So they have a different perspective on things, right? Like sometimes there can be those kind of roadblocks, but I think the most inspiring part is watching those roadblocks melt away in like real moments, right? And so I mean like literally in the lead up of going into a concert venue to table and outreach for an action day, there seems to be more of that like buffer and boundary kind of thing that seems bureaucratic. And then throughout the three hours that were in the venue, by the end of the day, the door people and the managers of the venue and the people running the sound are actually like coming up to us and they're actually taking a flyer and saying like, yeah, maybe I'll come to this action day. And all of a sudden, like, hey, you guys can only have these like three square feet of space at the back corner it turns into like, oh, yeah, you need to go speak on stage for five minutes. Like, yeah, come with me or like whatever. So watching those boundaries melt away is inspiring because at the end of the day, we need to remember that all these entities and institutions and corporations, they're people. And as people see something new and actually get inspired by something different and actually get a feel, a visible feel for how it works, they become open to it often. And if those people become open to it, some of those like rules and regulations and bureaucratic red tape kind of melts away to just the 
eye to eye connection of like, oh, you're a human being and I can see you're legit and I want to help empower you to do what you're trying to do here. And it becomes a relationship instead of like a, you know, just a communication boundary we have to get over. Hey, can we have four people table from this time to this time? What time do you need us for load in and et cetera, right? right? But you communicate really well, obviously. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with you and just listening to you talk about, you know, kind of progressive ideas and, 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 and basically describe them or communicate them in a language that everybody can understand. And that's got to be an asset when you're sitting down to talk with a suit or somebody that maybe is not even aware of this action that's going on. Mm -hmm. And that's got to be feel really good to you to come away from one of those experiences, feel like you've impacted somebody on that side of the fence. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I think the relationship building is one of the most important parts of this. It's like... You know, we were talking about this last night, Zach and I. Zach is our media point person. He's been with us since the first Permaculture Action Tour with Polish Ambassador back in yeah, 2014. I remember that. And um, we were talking last night about that, how we're kind of slowly building this network, which is really important right now and can be used for all kinds of incredible project builds, actions, events right now. But when things start to get a little more heated up, as we're seeing in Europe, as we're seeing in the Middle East, as we're seeing as, you know, the border starts to be built up and climate change and ecological collapse is causing humans to actually move from geographical location to geographical location. Like as that tension builds, this network can also be put into effect to, you know, do all the things that we want to do in those moments to create a more liberatory world for all of us, right? To create a more like a world of collective care um, and a world where we're like taking care of one another and creating a world that we actually want to live in. So it feels cool to, you know, that network is not some like structural thing where it's a big like, you know, constituent relationship management system in a spreadsheet, but that network is a very real thing. And a lot of the permaculture action network isn't even the people that the organizers know to reach out to all the workshop facilitators and farm stewards and, you know, urban permaculturists and teachers and musicians, like all those people are part of our network that we actually know. We know their phone numbers or their email addresses and their skills, but there's so much of the network that is just these five people that met in an action day that we don't even know met at an action day and then went and started some new project that we're not even aware of. Um, these relationships that have been built from people coming to these actions and then they know to call on one another who lives in their city that's interested in the same things. And that was one of the biggest intentions of the first permaculture action tour was to one, uh, bring people out on the ground to permaculture projects and urban farms and community spaces in their city so they can become familiar with them. Two, to connect people with all the organizations and projects that exist um, so that they know what's there in their location. But third, to connect people to one another, to say like, hey, you don't just have to be the person standing next to that other person at the concert who kind of feels like you share something in common and you're sharing a collective moment, but actually, give them a space to talk to one another, find out where their mutual values and interests lie and actually give them an opportunity to create relationships that lead to uh, new projects, actions, new organizations, new collective like visions and putting that into material reality. Like that's a really cool part of the network aspect of permaculture action. It's just catalyzing that relationship building. And so that relates as you were asking to the relations we build between like booking agents and venue managers and festival producers and stuff as well. Like those are real relationships that are being catalyzed through this work that can do big things in the future and are doing pretty substantial things already. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it at a lot of festivals and it's, 
interesting. I've been, you know, a lot of the work that I do is in the festival community. And, uh, you know, I, I came out here in 20, well, I came out here a few times, but I came out here to stay from the East Coast in 2013 and kind of dove headfirst into the West Coast festival culture and communities and down to Costa Rica and so forth, as did Zach. I actually met Zach at Envision or a couple days before Envision. Um, and, um, you know, the, every event of that nature has various level of intentions and authenticity and so forth. But now you're starting to see uh, on a much smaller and, you know, dumbed down scale education programs at festivals like at Halloween in Florida and mm -hmm. up on the Northeast. Um, and I think it's really important to start there, like at base level mm -hmm. and, and reach those people as much as it is like the people you're going to hear at TED Talks or run into a Burning Man or, you know, holding court at lightning in a bottle. I mean, that's important too. And that's where I go to find shit out. But there's a lot of folks that are just, you know, they know they want to do something. Mm -hmm. They know it's out there and they like passed by somewhere at a festival and went into a tent and right. they're mind blown and they come out like ready to fuck shit up. So that's another big piece of what we do is in addition to the action days, which are like, I would say our primary function is to organize these permaculture action days, but we also set up permaculture action hubs at music festivals and we run courses often before music festivals. So permaculture action hubs are workshop spaces within a music festival where we just run a full schedule of skill shares and talks and workshops all day long every day for the music festival so from like 9 a.m to 6 p.m you know there's a full slate of workshops and skillshares happening it's often printed on the festival schedule it's at the very least like posted up right there at the entryway um, in addition to the skillshares there's demonstration systems so people can come actually get their hands on like a mushroom log and see how mushrooms are grown or they can get their hands on like a mini like water harvesting system and see how that actually works um, yeah. And so that happens all the time. I mean, we're always blown away, I think, when we create these spaces and it's a ton of work going into it. And then to see like 50 to 100 people at every single workshop for three days of a music festival and like the thousands of people cumulatively that are going into these spaces and learning something new or building a new relationship or becoming inspired to often like change the course of their lives. Yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to be like, you know, hyperbolic there like we've heard a lot of people that would be like yeah i came to this permaculture action hub and i sat in on this workshop on it. urban farming and direct action or on this yeah. workshop on water harvesting and you know soil building and uh i quit my job at this big corporation and i started this you know new startup company and this is what we're doing now or i joined this organization that's doing work that i align with i learned some things from them for a year and then i decided to start my own project with people that is even more in the direction of what I actually want to be doing. And so lots of people are, you know, saying that they're coming through those permaculture action hubs, they're sitting in on those workshops, they're going to an action day or coming to a permaculture action course, and then they're going on to do all this work that they find really important. And I think that's one of the biggest assets that we have as a collective, as an organization, permaculture action work, is not trying to make it about us. I feel like a lot of nonprofits and a lot of organizations try to carry energy towards themselves so as to carry energy towards an issue that they right. focus on. And what we're kind of saying is like, it's not about us, it's about y'all. Like become self-empowered to do what you want to do. Like meet right. the people who you're going to build something with in the world. Like 
This is about all of the things that come after the action day, all the things that come after you sit in a workshop or come to a course that you do half the time that we don't even know about. It's about just catalyzing more like self-empowerment and like generation of movement building out in the world. Yeah. Man. So we're trying to like deflect and we're trying to actually be like, no, this isn't about us. Like don't get hyper-focused on us. Don't just wait for the next action day. Like go take yeah. action. Like here's tools. Here's, you know, uh, training on like how to do community organizing here's training on how to you know build permaculture systems um here's spaces to meet other people that share the same values as you that you might not have known shared the same values as you if you only went to a bunch of shows with them and never just decided to like sit down in a circle of a facilitated conversation where you then learned that you actually oh man like you care about these things too like i don't know how many times like we say that to one another right but I can imagine that's happening in these spaces. People are being like, really? Like, I didn't know other people thought these same things. Like, we hear that a lot, right? It's like, I have these thoughts in my head, but I've never seen it articulated in that way. Or I didn't know you guys shared the same thoughts that I share. Like, where can we go with this? How can our dialogue lead to planning and lead to action, lead to something material actually being introduced to the world that wasn't there before? Mm -hmm. Just took a brief moment to catch our breath and uh, enjoy this beautiful afternoon in Ryan's backyard here in Berkeley. And... All this talk about action days and, you know, quote-unquote wokeness um, has just kind of had me ruminating on my own history. And I've acknowledged on the pod a few times, um, people that know me in my real life, that I wasn't always, you know, having my thumb on the pulse of these type of matters. And in particular, I was asleep at the wheel in terms of environmentalism and awareness and how my direct action impacted things did stupid shit like flicked a cigarette butt out the window. I was not motivated to like separate the trash and recycling and let alone composting. And then a lovely woman, Jill Trashley came into my life. Um, my former partner and still one of my very dear friends and the gnome, uh, proprietor of the gnome co is a friend of the show. And anyway, um, she first shamed me and then enlightened me into, you know, what the time was and like, how I could live differently and make a difference and then in turn affect others. And in that process, when I got to the cusp of being really open to accepting, you know, people's natural inclinations to be defensive, try to explain away why what they do doesn't matter or doesn't make a difference. And once you get over that hump, then you're usually ready to be educated. And that's when she put you on my radar. Mm -hmm. So um, since then, I'm, you know, proud and humble to say that uh, I live a different life in many ways and I have an amazing partner now that that's a big part of Alicia's life and, um, and I've been introduced to permaculture been introduced to you know I know you hate the word but activism mm-hmm. and like getting involved in causes and groups and organizations that are doing work that I want to be a part of so I want to ask you um, this is your life's work but you know it didn't happen overnight did you have a period of time in your youth where you, you know you weren't yet woke or have you known from the beginning that this was you know your path um i was the weird kid to be honest like my path evolved over time to a place where i think what i'm doing now is the most effective pointed work i can be doing but um i was always the weird kid in high school that you know was reading like anarchist texts in math class and was spending his nights like on wikipedia following one hyperlink to the next hyperlink to the next hyperlink, learning about, you know, uh, corporate globalization and the prison industrial complex and um, 
you know, just the war that exists on poor people constantly and all these things. And so I was really involved in kind of like the more activism, direct action, revolutionary stuff until I was about 18. Um, so that included things like going down to D.C. to block the presidential inauguration of Bush in 2005 and IMF and World Bank meetings, um, doing things like food not bombs, uh, cooking food that would otherwise be thrown away to the waste stream uh, and sharing it with people for free on the street, um, building bicycles for day laborers, um, doing programs where we're sending books to political prisoners and prisoners um, at large. And then it was around 18. I was actually in Denver for uh, the inauguration, I'm sorry, for the Democratic National Convention of Obama. Um, and this first connects time, to music, first time. So uh, it was Obama's DNC. And there were a bunch of people that were already, you know, calling out what this president, if he became president, was, you know, going to do in terms of continuing neoliberal policies and continuing militarization around the world and these kind of things where, you know, the people that I was in dialogue with at the time were not uh, friendly to like neoliberal politics and Obama being some kind of savior. And so we actually got the call out from a bunch of other organizers who were calling people to come to the DNC and uh, protest. And in addition to that, there was an invitation from Rage Against the Machine. Um, they decided to play a free concert at a big auditorium in Denver. Yeah. And then after the free concert, which they was hadn't played packed, in years. Yeah, they hadn't played in years. So everyone was like, oh, free Rage Against the Machine show. Rage Against the Machine plays for free and then marches everyone with the Iraq veterans against the war directly out of the auditorium to the front of the DNC. Um, and so like as we're approaching the DNC and getting closer, like the riot police and, you know, law enforcement becomes ever more overbearing and slowly like the peace and love people start to peel off yeah. and then the activists start to peel off until it's just a bunch of like, you know, kind of militant yeah. um, street organizers and Iraq veterans against the war and like full military camouflage up against like a riot police line at the DNC. Um, so it was during that, it was that night, we were going down one of those escalators into the subway system in Denver. And my friend just mentioned the word permaculture, this guy that I'd driven out from Massachusetts to Denver with for this event. And I, you know, asked him what it was. And he said, well, you know how the way we live is really linear, like across all things, food, housing, water, like we extract things from over here, we use them and we throw them out over there. Like permaculture is about living in a cyclical way. We're actually returning that material, that energy to where it came from. And therefore, you know, putting energy back into the ecological systems that give us life and that allow us to be well as people. Um, and so that idea kind of just stuck for me pretty quickly, that idea of returning from like a linear way of living to a more cyclical way of living that acknowledges the relationships of ecosystems and acknowledges like the larger world around us materially. Um, and so from there, I took my first permaculture design course, started a permaculture design collective in Massachusetts and did a few small design installs. And then um, from there, you know, learned a lot over the course of like three or four years about uh, herbal medicine and uh, urban farming and perennial food systems of growing, you know, crops that you don't have to plant each year, but that will grow year after year and give you an edible or medicinal yield or building materials or whatever it might be. And then it was really um, Occupy Wall Street that kind of 
got me back into like the direct action community organizing stuff. And so I was, I was following the build up to Occupy Wall Street for months on a website. It was like kind of like a backroom forum called whatistheplan.org. And it was like way before Occupy Wall Street actually hit. And I was following it for a couple months. Were you living here in the Bay? Living in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. Yeah. And uh, that's where I was doing all this permaculture learning and stuff was in Western Massachusetts, where I lived for four years before coming out here. So you traveled out to the the convention in Denver, then back to Massachusetts. Yeah. Like grew up in Jersey, went up to Massachusetts for college. During that time, went out to the convention, heard about permaculture, came back and like Went to California to take my first permaculture design course, came back, started the collective. How old were you at this is the like, time of the convention? Uh, 18, 19. Okay. Yeah. And um, then I'm living in Massachusetts at like 21, following this like whatistheplan.org thing. And I was like, I got to go to this. Like I got to go to this Occupy Wall Street thing when it, on its first day. Like I think it's probably just going to be the same thing I'm used to with these big summit things where like people come in there's a couple days of catharsis in the streets and you know hold signs meet people you think you're gonna continue connecting with and you never actually follow up and then okay it's over like at least we had a moment of catharsis and protest in the streets or whatever and Occupy Wall Street was just completely different than that like I got there the first day it was very clear that this wasn't like a hyper organized thing like even the facilitators didn't exactly know what they were doing and uh, we met at the bull in on Wall Street and people were like hey like our plan was to go and sit in at Wall Street but the cops have it completely you know barricaded off like there's no way we're actually getting into Wall Street so here's these maps and they handed out all these like black and white maps that had little circles with numbers on them different parts of the city and it was like we're gonna tell people during the march which site we're going to and it was like site 17 which was Zuccotti Park so we enter Zuccotti Park And the facilitators say that they have way more people here today than they expected would be here. And so we're not going to be able to just have one big general assembly. We need to break out into smaller groups. And if anyone has experience facilitating consensus process, like raise your hand. And so I kind of raised like a shaky, like, (laughs) eh, maybe I'm sure there's other people that know better than I, but like I do have some experience. And in the circle of like 100 to 150 people sitting around me, I was the only one that raised their hand. So I became like the facilitator of this group of 100, 150 people on day one of Occupy Wall Street. Holy and shit. we decided. At 21? Yeah, and we, de- we decided, you know, amongst our group of 100, 150, that the best plan was to continue occupying Zuccotti Park, to have like a march later that night, and to kind of go from there. And a lot of other groups had decided the same thing. We came back together in a big general assembly and that was the start of, you know, the occupation of Zuccotti Park. So I was there for three days and three nights and I'd been planning in the months leading up to this to go out to California. And so I kind of had that moment in those three days of like, finally, this moment I've been waiting for what feels like my whole life is here. And now I'm going to just go out to California to start like a permaculture farm up in like Northern California and live off the land and grow my own building materials and grow my own food and be in a place where it doesn't, you know, ice over and snow in the winter so I can have more opportunity to do that. I didn't know what to do and I decided to still go out to California and kind of follow that path and uh, came in to San Francisco and went to Occupy San Francisco um, to check it out because on the ride out, my friend who I was driving with said, you know, there's an Occupy and SF, right? And so came to SF my first day getting to California and it was like 20 people uh, sitting on the sidewalk, like passing a talking stick around. And, you know, I listened and uh, was humble for like 30, 45 minutes. And then, you know, I said, 
hey, you know, I just came out from Occupy Wall Street and there's this whole consensus process of these general assemblies with working groups and this whole thing. Do you guys want me to share that process with you all? And people said yes. And so I shared that process that Occupy Wall Street had come up with. Um, and over the course of the next like week, we started having 1,000 to 1,500 people at every general assembly at 6 p.m. every single night of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, like Saturday, Sunday. Every night there was 1,000 to 1,500 people coming from San Francisco to these large general assemblies. And, um, you know, and what I s- would take place during the general assembly? Um, proposals and decisions about actions, including, like, do we continue to occupy this space and create like a liberated space where people can come together and um, hold space, dialogue, have workshops, um, meet material needs of people, healthcare, food, clothing, right? Like at Occupy SF, like the nurses union in the San Francisco Bay Area, they were there providing like free healthcare for like two months, like hundreds of thousands of dollars in like what would be like market value of the kind of things that were being offered for free and voluntarily. so it was all that kind of stuff happening in general assemblies. And it was cool because it was a consensus process. And so if people wanted to form working groups and do something as a working group of Occupy SF, they were free to do so. But if people wanted to do something as Occupy SF as a whole, we needed to pass that by consensus as an entire collective of people. And it worked. Like we passed lots of proposals as an entire you know, collection of people coming to these general assemblies for um, new spaces to occupy buildings to take over and turn into community centers, um, gardens to, you know, empty lots to turn into gardens, marches to go on, like things where we, you know, went and took action against like the big corporate financial system, Bank of America, things like that. Um, And so that process kind of brought me back into like, oh yeah, this is where my heart lies, like this permaculture stuff, this living in relationship with the land and creating what we need with our own hands. If we want to be free and live in autonomous communities, we need to be able to actually relate with the earth and create what we need. That's really important. And like, this is kind of my initial drive was like this kind of on the street, in the city, direct action, community organizing kind of thing. And then it was after that, after all the camps had been broken up by Department of Homeland Security and police departments across the country and the Occupy movement had kind of been squashed, um, that we started coming together in a house that's actually a block from here. And we started having meetings about a potential action that was Occupy the Farm. And so that was the Gill Tract where you came to an action day. Uh, But this was way before the Permaculture Action Days. This was when we first first started it. I heard about just the issue there. Right. It was through Occupy the Farm. Right. So that was basically an action where the University of California at Berkeley had been given 100 acres around 1910 for the purposes of agriculture and education. And they'd already developed like 80% of it into like university housing and concrete and pavement and things like this. And so the last 20% of the land that was left, they went to turn into a Whole Foods and a shopping plaza. And so we decided that we were going to have a big march. We were going to break the lock on the fence, walk in and create a community farm on this site instead of allowing it to become another Whole Foods. Um, and so we did that and we had like 3000 people come to this food sovereignty march in the Bay area, most of whom didn't know it was going to happen. They didn't know it was going to be a direct action. They didn't know that for the last two months we've been growing thousands of seedlings and greenhouses in Santa Cruz and that we had rototillers and, you know, hundreds of shovels and wheelbarrows with us, but we broke the lock. We went into the gill tract and we started a community farm there and, um, that project proved really successful. Whole Foods pulled out of the development deal. They said, this is too much trouble. We can go develop a 
already paved over lot half a mile down the road. Um, the university said that they would put uh, 10 acres of the land into a metropolitan agriculture program that the UC would run for at least the next 10 years, guaranteeing at least that part of the land wouldn't be developed. Um, and over the course of time, we actually ended up getting the university to create a acre and a half community farm on that site that the people that started Occupy the Farm as an action still run. Um, and so we still to this day grow literal tons of organic food at the Giltrack Community Farm and we share it with people around the Bay Area for free. Um, sometimes it's sold at markets in the last like year or two, but for many years and still to this day, like lots of that food is just shared for free around the Bay Area. Um, so that was really the pinnacle moment of me kind of combining like the direct action, horizontal organizing, mutual aid, gift economy, all that stuff that was kind of Occupy related and direct action related with the permaculture, land-based, right, urban farming, how do we live in right relationship with the earth. And so it kind of coalesced right there. And then over the next year or two, I did a lot of actions where we were defending urban farms and permaculture gardens in the city from being turned into condominiums and things like this. And then I went down to visit the Zapatistas um, when they did the little school, which was the Escuelita. They finally, after 20 years of existing in Chiapas in southern mm -hmm. Mexico, as these autonomous territories, they decided to invite people from around the world to come learn with them. So I was, I've been studying the Zapatistas since I was like 15, uh, sitting yeah. in my mom's basement. It's like, I'm going. Like I went to the little school. And on the way there, um, my partner at the time broke up with me, right? Like went to the little school, learned a lot from the Zapatistas. And then for the next month, I'm sitting in Chiapas, Mexico. Kind of like, okay, like I'm feeling pretty depressed. Like I need to do something like shake my life up a little. Like, you know, Envision Festival is happening. It's right. uh, two country borders away. I can take a bus there. Let me write to them and see if I can teach some workshops there and go. So I did. I went to Envision. I taught some workshops and... From there, I was invited to a gathering that was happening after the festival. So I agreed to go and teach a bunch of workshops at this gathering, and that was where the Polish ambassador and Ela Nerio, these two music producers, um, and Ela is a folk singer and works with Polish ambassador on like a larger music project. Um, they were there to perform at night, but also to sit in on these different workshops and discussions. And that's where Polish said, yeah, I'm down with the idea of bringing people on tour with me to teach about permaculture and teach about the kind of things we're talking about at this gathering. And so from there, I went to an eco-village design course in Nicaragua where I was helping to facilitate for a month. And it was with New Mundo, uh, at the time their Project Nuevo Mundo, who were kind of the first to say like, hey, Polish, we want to do this with you. And so during that month, we were having all these conversations. I didn't think I was involved with this thing. I was just talking to these people that were going to do this tour with Polish. And it's like, hey, you, you know, you guys should do more than just teach people about permaculture. You should actually invite people to you know, come out on the ground and take action the next day. You should connect people with the organizations in their city or with people, you know, so that they can start new projects. Like, you know what, you know, we have a lot of familiarity with permaculture and land-based projects in Central America and rural areas, but not really with cities. You seem to have a lot of like urban permaculture experience. Do you want to get more involved in this? Do you even want to like write a proposal? So I wrote a proposal to the Polish ambassador to do this permaculture action tour and basically laid out those ideas that I mentioned before, like what were the functions that we would do through this tour. And the Polish ambassador and his manager agreed and we just started organizing it. We crowdfunded $43,000 for the first permaculture action tour. And we went um, to 32 cities from like San Diego to Seattle, to Boston, to Jacksonville, Florida, and you know, 28 cities in between. 
And after every single concert that the Polish ambassador and Mr. Liff, who I've been listening to since I was 15 too, and Ayla played, we invited people out to an action day at a permaculture site in their area. And we started getting like 300, 400 people coming out to each of these action days. So much so that there were certain action days where the site we were going to work with was like, hey guys, we expected like 30, 40 people to come after the concert. Like we can't host 400 people. So then we need to find two, three, four other sites to do with the same day so we can split people up. And I think that's, that's when we were really inspired. Like, wow, we're getting three, 400 people to come to each of these action days. Like this is a big thing. And then I think it was a year later when we started talking to folks at our first permaculture action course, it actually wasn't us. It was other students that started asking each other, like, how'd you first hear about permaculture? And so many of the students were like, you know, I came to a concert and then I went to an action day and now I, you know, do this. And now I live at the land trust in Atlanta. Now I work on an urban farming project. Um, you know, I started a new organization with some people that I met through one of these action days. We're like, oh, this is really effective work. Like we need to continue doing this. And so that's how we decided to found an organization to continue it. And that's how we, you know, founded Permaculture Action Network to continue partnering with artists and festivals and cultural events to keep catalyzing movement building and inviting people out to these days of action. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So that was like more or less the pathway. That's amazing. Yeah. So many uh, connections between you and I that we didn't even realize along that path. Uh, first, just want to acknowledge uh, our friend Zach here made a film about that tour. Yeah. Is it, can you watch it on YouTube? Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's also on our website, which is okay. permacultureaction.org. And it's a full-length documentary film about the first permaculture action tour. So Zach was with us every step of the way. Like, we drove, you know, from San Francisco down to San Diego and all the way to the last action day in New York City. And Zach was, you know putting articles up on the website, um, making photo journal blogs, filming, editing video, putting up videos in the moment, and amongst all that, collecting footage for a full-length documentary, um, pushing through the pavement about the Permaculture Action Tour. And so that's available online if people want to see what that first tour was like and get an idea of what those 32 action days felt like in 2014. That's a great way to kind of immerse yourself if you weren't there back then. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched it. It's pretty awesome. I went to the first uh, night of the tour and the first action day uh, in Nevada City. Yeah, I remember. It was the last time I saw Zach for a very long time, actually. Um, but uh, I wanted to... So basically, uh, I wasn't always super asleep at the wheel because you were talking about Rage Against the Machine. And because of Rage Against the Machine as a youth is how I found out about the Zapatistas. And the, how do you pronounce it? Chiapas? Yeah, Chiapas, yeah. Mexico. I mean, he was you know a big proponent of that yeah Zach De La Rocha yeah and uh you know I'm a huge Rage fan so I was always really curious and interested in you know what he was talking about so that piqued my curiosity and I was always really like amazed that you went down there and like because he did that for a time and like went and lived with them and uh you know was always very militant for their cause and their existence and so Mm -hmm. forth and then uh the 2000 Republican National Convention was in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I grew up in South Jersey and spent most of my 20s in Philly. And uh, I wasn't having it. You know, like, I was all raged up. Yeah. And uh, went down there and um, made a sign. At the time, I had, like, dog ear dreadlocks, you know. Uh, which I had dreads for, like, a decade. But these were babies in 2000. And I didn't know what I was in for. I fucking marched myself solo, made a sign, uh to the front lines and it was the first time I'd ever seen 
like direct action anarchists like masked troops coming through like people linking up in the middle of the street cops with batons i got like thrown up against the wall by this a delegate same who was same like, just mistook me for somebody you know but what he didn't really mistake me i was there with the sign fucking talking shit but uh it was just like this crazy whirlwind experience of like a day of my life on the streets of philadelphia during the convention and uh you know i was frightened by it all and i, I maybe had a bit more of like a my response to that was to like dive into the arts and the culture mm -hmm. and basically like ignore the whole that and then 9-11 happened shortly after that I happened to be in New York City for that I lost two wow. friends who were at their job at the trade center Kenner Fitzgerald fresh out of college I mean my own path took me a lot of different wayward you know side avenues before I was able to kind of harness how I could contribute and how I could use what I do to reach people, which is how we're sitting here today. Yeah. And so much of that education and inspiration comes from music. Music. Yeah. It's how it Same. brings people together. And so much magic and action and culture spirals out of music. Right. I think that's the first place that I was able to actually find the ideas that were going through my head and the things that I was touching on, but didn't really know how to articulate or find other people that were speaking these same right. things. It was through music. It was like actually reading, you know, the paper packet that comes in the CD right. of Rage Against the Machine's album and actually analyzing the lyrics or, you know, just listening closely to hip hop music and learning about new things. Oh, okay, these, these ideas references? are being spoken about publicly. Just often the only forum that they have to actually get amplified is through music because you're not going to see these voices on the mainstream media. You're not going to see these voices on your television. But music with hip hop and punk rock, Raging Against the Machine, these different artists, like you start to see a lot of these ideas being articulated. And if you listen beyond, you know, the drums and the bass guitar and start hearing what the people are actually saying that are on the microphones. That's where I started to find like a lot of resonance. And it was that resonance that, you know, ca catapulted me into continuing to do this work. And then it was so refreshing to come back to that in 2014 and actually use music through this permaculture action tour to actually directly right. mobilize people into not just, hey, let's share some ideas and, you know, hear some conscious lyrics and hope that that inspires people to do something later down the road. Let's actually directly invite people out the next day from this concert to actually get together like in an empty lot in the city and turn it into like a full-blown urban farm in, you know, six hours. Before the permaculture, before the direct action and the community organizing, when you were just figuring shit out and listening to music and saying like, I want to be affiliated with this or I want to meet people of like-minded interests, what were some of the works or the artists? Was it hip-hop? Um, you mentioned punk rock. Yeah. Obviously, you know, in there infancy they're kind of two sides of the same coin mm -hmm. reggae's in there somewhere too mm -hmm. um what were some of the things that you heard that rocked your world that made you want to open those cd covers or like find out what this is about like some of the artists and yeah projects. Or, or albums yeah. or moments in time where you were like holy shit yeah i mean i mean just continue on the rage thread for a moment i at 16 i joined an organization uh, called the Bergen Action Network, where I was living in New Jersey. Bergen County. Yeah. And um, it was a collective of, you know, direct action organizers and anarchists and other folks who were doing things like Food Not Bombs and going down to, you know, protest the IMF and World Bank meetings and Bush's inauguration and things like that, where, you know, in Bush's inauguration in 2005, I got thrown up against a brick wall by a <laughs> riot cop with an assault rifle, which is 
I don't know. I just oh, thought man. of that when you told your story about getting thrown up against a wall yeah. in 2000. Um, but um, I was talking to one of the kids that was part of that organization and it came out that he was the one who had spray painted the image from the Battle of Los Angeles album, that guy like yeah. holding a raised fist, just like an yeah. outline on that album, on my elementary school when I was a kid. And I'd seen that when I was a kid and I was inspired by it, but oh, of course I had so no idea who did it. And then <laughs> yeah. I'm like talking to this dude years later and he's like, oh yeah, I was the one who put that piece up on your elementary school. And I was like, no That's way. Incredible. Like I was going to school there at the time. Like, oh, this was man. years before. 99, yeah, Battle, battle um, was 99. So Rage was huge, but... I think like underground hip hop really uncovered a lot for me, you know, going from listening to like Notorious B.I.G. and the Wu-Tang Clan and then getting deeper and listening to, you know, things like De La Soul and listening to Mr. Liff um, and listening to Brother Ali yeah. and Atmosphere and some of these like underground Minneapolis based artists and Ryan things Sayers like that. Group. Yeah. And which now like, you know, there's kind of um, like P.O.S. and Doomtree has kind of like carried that lineage even to what I would say is even more like potent place even though they're not as like well known right um and then punk rock was a huge piece of it even though i started at you know i remember uh being on an online forum when i was a kid and talking about anti-flag and having other people be like anti-flag isn't real punk rock like real punk rock is crass and i was like what's what's crass so started looking into crass and leftover crack and choking victim and that's eventually world of punk yeah people don't even think about starting there yeah over crack i've heard that one in a minute yeah eventually yeah. which is cool because we were going to talk about coalesce the festivals yeah. this that is this weekend where tipper's playing in the bay and um i was really inspired when i read the article i think his name's robert cummings i'm not sure but he gave an interview um about his you know production company coalesce and kind of where he started and in the interview he names that like his musical influences before any of this like bass music psychedelic music kind of thing was leftover crack and choking victim i was like oh like the homie knows what's up like the (laughs) homie was listening to the music back in the day so things like that uh rise against strike anywhere their music was really like potent lyrically for me so i think just between like punk rock and hip-hop um and of course like there's some reggae and things thrown in the mix folk music from back in the 60s and even earlier woody guthrie and things like that was all an inspiration yeah 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 well, it's funny because I just read and listened to the Beastie Boys book, and I've always been heavy on the Beasties, and they spent a good deal of time talking about the early days and the 80s in New York City and how the worlds of punk rock and early hip-hop, they were just like music of the streets of the people, like marginalized, making do with like what they have and creating like dope art, lo-fi, you know, whatever it was, and, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear that like all the generations later like you know you're finding sort of the same symbiotic relationship between the worlds even though uh both genres have kind of been bastardized Mm -hmm. um there's still at least was a lot of potency in that symmetry back then i also like you know was never really big on punk i liked some punk like chromags you know and some like the crossover stuff i was more of a metal guy Mm -hmm. and uh I don't know, like, I'm curious, like, do you find that, um, you know, hip-hop, be it the Sprite commercials or the sort of dumbing down of just what constitutes a hot record, um, you and I, you know, we talk probably way more about hip-hop than we do about anything else. Anything else. Yeah. Um, 
Are you still finding the gems, the jewels? Because I always loved Lyft. He was one of my favorite cats oh, from yeah. like Def Jux days. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's still out there doing it. He rocks with Thievery Corporation yep. nowadays, which is dope. They'll be here on New Year's, actually. Tight. Um, I think I'm going to do that early and then go to Coalesce, actually. Cool. But uh, I don't know. Like I, I'm, I find myself still going back to um, cats that have always done it for me, whether it was Black Thought mm-hmm. or even Jay-Z. Yeah. Um, what hip hop today um, is is really like stoking that flame. It doesn't have to be like the activism flame, but mm-hmm. make, just making original art that has impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mentioned POS before. I really like his lyrics. They're really direct and upfront, and the whole like Doom Tree crew out of Minneapolis. Um, kind of re-listening to a lot of things, like re-listening to. Um, stuff by I don't know just I think if you dig deeper into some of the lyrics of even artists like Wu-Tang Clan and I mean Tupac sure. right like there's so much there that isn't really up front but as you like listen closer um, you start to hear a lot of the undertones and the things that they were pointing towards and there's like a cryptic language that was used in some of that early hip-hop that a lot of people listening wouldn't really understand what they're saying it's like not the, the punk rock like stuff? yeah a lot of yeah. that kind of you know, signaling that happens right. and you have to read between the lines to really hear where they're pointing towards and the street knowledge that hip hop's trying to convey. Uh, well, but I think a lot of that called it the ghetto CNN. Yeah. Um, I, I find it interesting, especially to sit here in Oakland and talk about Tupac. I'm not huge on Tupac, but Me neither. I'm, I'm well versed in his story and his music. And, you know, I was going to ask if you said you're not huge on him, but there was like a dual duality there because, you know, he portrayed one thing and also right. spoke a lot of truths. And I find that to be the case even with like Wu-Tang. You know, on one coin you got Old Dirty. Yeah. And then you got like the Jizza kicking like the, the genius. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's hip hop as a whole. It's like, you know, it's going to be some hood shit. It's hard to sing along to Mob Deep when, you know. They, sure. But at the same time, like that shit is ill. And you know what, like. <laughs> you know white supremacist culture and kind of the worldview that overtakes everything pushes a lot of these things to be seen in a certain light but if we like reanalyze what even like Tupac and some of these folks were talking about and some of like the gangster rap which let's draw that word back to like gang like what was a gang back in the day like gangs were revolutionary organizations that were trying to change their communities like crip you know to a lot of people that back in the day it meant community revolution in progress it was about people coming together in their own neighborhoods to make their neighborhoods better they weren't as you know articulated and pointed in their programs as the black panthers or something but they were doing a very similar thing they were providing material needs for the people in their neighborhood they were trying to you know overcome police violence and overcome like the violence of a capitalist (laughs) system that says you can't eat unless you have money um so even that like gang culture, I think it's really worth looking beyond what kind of the mainstream media and kind of what our like indoctrinated culture says about those things, that it's all just about like violence and drugs and things like this and see that actually all of this stuff started with people just attempting to reclaim their own neighborhoods and like work for the liberation of their people. And uh, through the very real struggles that come along with living in a society overrun by private property and violent cops and all of these things of course you're going to get to the point where in struggling against those systems of power you know you start beefing with one another you start fighting with one another you start 
running drugs to make money and doing what you need to do to survive. Because at the end of the day, like right. a lot of these gangs and a lot of what, you know, that gangster rap was speaking to, it was speaking to like, how do we survive in conditions where we're being like a third of us are being thrown in jail for minor, minor infractions. And, right. you know, we don't have the space to live um, in gentrifying neighborhoods and we don't have, you know, the food and the material needs being met that any people, you know, would deserve to meet by themselves if they only had the access to land and space to do so. Um, and then the same thing you were talking about and applying it to hip hop and gangster rap, you could really apply the same tenets to punk rock in its essence and working class white people. Totally. With, you know, the same sort of like stack of issues that they're up against in terms of being marginalized and this being a simple bare bones artistic rebellion to that. Mm -hmm. and, and then, like I said, you can see how that's been co-opted and bottled up and sold to you totally over and over again. And that's disenchanting. That's why some people, you know, Nas made a song 12 years ago, Hip Hop is Dead. Um, I don't know that it's dead, but um, I will say that the majority of the stuff that I'm still playing isn't current. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something that could be said for another genre that we've talked about with jungle mm -hmm. you know drum and bass is alive and well in some arenas but you know there was a time there it was revolutionary and a force of nature uh how did you get hip to jungle and what was like you know your shit back in the day yeah you i still listen to now yeah i still think it is a force of nature like there's no time where i feel the same energy that i feel in the streets at a direct action um other than like a drum and bass show where there's a bunch of people just like stepping and like using their bodies and kind of exploring like the fullness of their human bodies to like be a material force in the world. Like that stepping and dance culture that happens at jungle and drum and bass events, it resonates to me at least very similarly to the feeling of like being in the streets with a bunch of your, you know, affinities and taking a direct action or having to, you know, go up against riot cops when you're trying to create space in the world that would benefit everyone, but that, you know, the corporate interests that control <coughs> police departments don't want to see happen like that visceral kind of experience. I, I find that at drum and bass shows and jungle shows. Like that's where I get to like exercise my body and not worry that I'm going to be like thrown in a jail cell for doing so. Um, but I found jungle music back in like 2011. Am I saying this right? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, like 2000, 2007, 2008, and then maybe more in 2011. Basically in Massachusetts, I just got introduced to it by a friend and started going to the drum and bass shows in Northampton, Massachusetts. That would happen. The um, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I used to live in Vermont. Clinto used to like run all these shows right out on. there and I would go. Um, and then, you know, in San Francisco, that's really been grounded by Stamina Sundays. Um, I go every, almost every Sunday to this free to drum up, and bass event in San Francisco. And it's yeah. just the best to be able to like, one night of the week kind of have that experience that for other people is like church or prayer or yeah. you know ceremony or whatever they do to like meditate and ground to be able to go and dance to drum and bass for free every Sunday they bring in, in San Francisco. Talent. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, the rumor is that you know, they uh, put on house shows and the money that they make from house shows where you have to pay at the door, they use that to bring in all these international drum and bass DJs for free Sunday right night, like jungle events. Um, What's the name of the party? Uh, it's called Stamina. Stamina. Stamina Sundays in right San Francisco. Um, 
Yeah, in terms of artists, I mean, it's so, like, across the board. I don't even find myself too often going to, like, a particular artist, but logistics, um, London Electricity, um, those artists were always really inspiring for me, like, watching them do their live performances where they'll bring in, like, entire orchestras and stand-up basses and vocalists, having, like, black women singing these amazing songs over, like, a jungle beat live. Like, that was always really inspiring to me. Um... And I think there's like a militant culture that's kind of under the veil at a lot of those shows. Like I think if you start to like feel the visceral experience of being at those shows, like there's something that's pointing towards, uh, you know, we got to go out and do something um, to actually make the world a better place. Like we have to use our bodies to affect change. Um, It's funny because I was thinking about like the connection between what we're doing now and kind of my earlier days and like punk rock and things and I remember going to like the Starline uh, venue Ballroom. in New Jersey yes yeah, and I, I would go to these punk yeah, yeah. shows and I would like print out they had a lot of metal shows too yeah. yeah I would print out flyers and like my mom's you know I'd make them in, on my basement and my computer and I'd print them out on my mom's printer because she had like an in-home office That's and punk rock I'd bring these fucking like the eight and a half by 11 cut into four squares similar to what we do now like flyers inviting people to become part of food not bombs or to come together um, for these things we were doing with Bergen Action Network and just the entire venue would be just littered with these flyers on the ground at the end of the day I would never get an email from anybody and it was always like really confusing like I thought this punk rock stuff with the lyrics and everything, the energy in these shows, like people are vested in this. They want to participate in these things and it would never catch. And then to be at a rising Appalachia show where we're like speaking and tabling and we're at the door at the end of the day, handing out flyers for a permaculture action day. And like three quarters of the people are coming by and saying, Oh yeah, I'll be there. Do you know about it? Or you know about it from Facebook? Yeah. I heard them speak about on stage. I'll be there tomorrow. And it's just mind blowing to hear, you know, a half of an entire concert audience or three quarters of an audience say that they're coming tomorrow. Not like, oh, cool, I'll check it out, but like, I'll be there, see you tomorrow. Um, it's just the way that that's changed has been really inspiring for me to like look back on those moments where I thought that hip hop and punk and music culture was kind of where I was finding a community of like minds and then actually seeing that it wasn't leading towards anything effectual in like real life. And to now be sitting here partnering with you know, music festivals on the West Coast and in Colorado, Rising Appalachia, Polish Ambassador, Beats Antique, and having their audiences actually, like, come out in droves and embrace this stuff with yeah. open arms. And it's, like, a real a real shift and in inspiration from, like, those early days. I bet, man. Yeah. I, I hope that some folks, you know, outside of the sphere of influence hear this podcast and, you know, artists particularly that might be inclined to reach out, you know? So, uh... You know, Zach's here for this festival this weekend that you're going to for New Year's called Coalesce with Com- Cosmic Synergy. Some good people behind the event. Yep. It's going to be great. Um, off the air, we talked a little bit about Tipper. You had some strong words. and I also love Tipper, but I'm kind, of, I'm kind of new to him. I saw him play for the first time in 2013 Yeah. Burning Man. It was his first set since he had his heart attack on the Mayan Warrior at Sunrise, and that was like my introduction to him my first burn you can imagine that was like okay holy shit and then pretty much every time after that i came away from it not like underwhelmed but it just didn't click for me mm-hmm. but i kept trying and I came back around and now the last you know the half dozen times i've enjoyed tipper immensely as such i'll be there on new year's eve cool how did you come to tipper and you know i actually got introduced to the tip-hop album 
um, by a friend in Massachusetts when I was living there. And that's the only album where Tipper actually has a lyricist uh, rapping over some of his songs. And you listen to a few of the tracks, like Learning is Remembering, and like the politics are right there. But what's so interesting about Tipper is other than that one album, like Tipper does not do what Rising Appalachia or Beats Antique no, or these other groups do. He doesn't private. put stuff on social media about right. things that he believes in. He doesn't pull like the bass nectar kind of like, you know, um, I'll hit you over the head with like politics and beliefs kind of things. It's right. all cryptic. He doesn't say a word when he's on right. stage. Um, but you can kind of like feel it. You feel it. And yeah. I think that's what's cool. And I respect him for that. And for that, I'm not like, you know what, man, it's cool. Like you don't have to say things on stage. Right. You don't have to be public about it. Like we can feel it through the music and we can find it ourselves. You're creating the space for us to digest and come to these conclusions on our own. And that's good enough. Um, a soundtrack for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. These thoughts and Truly. actions. And, Absolutely. You know, I mean, I found myself drives. many a time like meditating on that music and sure. thinking through all these things that I'm speaking about now or that I'm putting into action. But, you know, you do need a soundtrack for those kind of things. We did write to tipper once about a potential action day in denver and his uh manager wrote back other dave um and he, right, right. yeah and he let us know that like you know at his home i think in the uk like he has a permaculture farm in the backyard and he mentioned some of the, like the crops that were coming in and oh, right that you know they're down but the way that they do things is to you know be unspoken on right. stage and to hold that space for everyone to kind of come what i believe they're doing is holding that space for everyone to kind of come to these conclusions on their own and build relationships horizontally peer-to-peer instead of like artists to audience like let us let you know what to do um so i respect that and i really enjoy the spaces that he creates when he gets up on a stage and doesn't say a word but scratches some vinyl and plays a bunch of tracks that he's been working for years on i'm sure yeah. yeah, he does a very uh, improvisational performance. It's very in the moment. Um, and I think that that's what draws me to him, is just um, in a world of, like, push-play mm-hmm. or cats that are doing anything but making music in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, he's the opposite. Yeah. And you, you know, it's from the ground up, if you will, just builds it, and you can just watch him in action, although, you know, he doesn't have, like... A spotlight on him or whatever but if you get a glimpse of him i mean he's just in the corner wizard yeah at work you know a scientist and uh you know i feel like you mentioned like people can feel it in the music and understand and if you've you know paying attention a lot of really uh, brilliant and inspired groups and people and movements you know to borrow a phrase have coalesced around his music and his events and uh they don't need to be hit over the head with it. Right. It's like, understand that this, this is the space for that, and they're doing things with right. it. So I'm anticipating this weekend uh, event for that reason, just to see what, you know, builds around it. Because it's it's his head his headlining event, and he's playing twice, but there's so much space between, and it should be interesting to see how, like, the Bay Area shows out. Right. You know, it's been a minute since there's been a New Year's event quite like this one. Right. And I think it's important because... I think sometimes when organizations like ours start to get seen, start to get known, there's just this implicit thing that we all do as people that's kind of, you know, we're coming from a place of disempowerment and isolation. And so we think like, okay, unless I'm part of that organization or I, you know, get a connection to an artist like that, I can't really do it too. And I think what people need to remember and what we're helping people to remember is that they can like instigate and organize and throw these kind of things by themselves. They don't need to wait for that you know, organizational or partner connection. So 
Although I know that Tipper would never, um, you know, shout out an action day from stage at Coalesce. Like I'm going to be bringing a hundred like quarter page flyers for the action day in Oakland at Segorate Land Trust. I'm going to be handing them out to the intelligent people I talk to. And therefore like a conversation that could have been 10, 20 minutes of like resonating with a stranger that I don't know and talking about some ideas and hoping that, you know, somewhere down the line, we each make something of that. I'm going to hand a direct invitation to someone to actually come out on January 20th and like you know, Experience. build a build an outdoor kitchen at a indigenous land trust or plant a bunch of trees at Planting Justice's nursery, actually experience it, like you said, and meet people and hopefully go a lot further from there. So I think that's, you know, an invitation that I'm making in this right. podcast is for each of us to just try and try again to like see what those little moments are where you can spur something to become something else or build a connection with someone that'll lead to action. And that's how it all started, you know, uh, I think I bring up the stories like I did about going to those punk shows and handing out flyers and having it all just flop because it's important that none of us who are getting the opportunity to speak on a podcast like I am right now are kind of building this idea in people that they have to wait or they have to be the right person. Like, no, like all of us started as someone just trying to like do something and it failed and made a bunch of mistakes and we got called out and we learned something new. And then over time we evolve into a more effective and a more, you know, intelligent, like organizer, educator, actor, whatever it might be. Um, so I think that's just a really important invitation that I want to like hit on is just for everyone to kind of remember their power and to try something and fail, try something new, make mistakes. Like you'll get there eventually and you'll meet the right people and you'll do something incredible. It's just about starting somewhere. Right on. man. Yeah. I think that that's a very eloquently said and Though we could speak further, I think that's a really righteous note to go out on. So, uh, yeah, January 20th uh, with uh, Sigourite. Mm-hmm. Sigourite um, Land Trust. The location. It's on uh, 105th Ave in Oakland, like deep okay. east Oakland. But um, if you look up like the Planning Justice Nursery, you'll find it. You could also just go to our event on Facebook. It's the Oakland Permaculture Action Day with Lead to Life. The address is on there, permacultureaction.org. We always host all our action days. So if you're listening to this beyond January 20th, 2019, you're wondering what action days are happening or what we're putting on in the future, check out permacultureaction.org. We'll always have our events events listed there as well as on our Facebook page, Permaculture Action Network. Um, And we, you know, that's what we do. We try to make the invitations like really clear and detailed so people have a time and place to plug in and actually come through. Um, don't have to like wait for some moment in the future to possibly arise. Like we try to make these small moments of connecting and taking action pretty regular. So throughout the year, there's at least, you know, 10, 20, 30 of these action days and think beyond them of two and look for all the things that are happening in your community. You know, often it comes from just like Googling some keywords or connecting with someone through a Facebook message that, you know, you're just asking, is there any chance that you're up to something that I can get involved in? And that's often where it starts. Humble yeah. beginnings for sure. Yeah. Right on. So permacultureaction.org. Yeah. And this is Ryan Rising with the Permaculture Action Network. We've been grateful to have this awesome chat in your backyard farm. Thank you for making the time and speaking to the Upful Life. Absolutely. Thank you so much for I'll coming. I'll see you on the dance floor. See you there. All right.
I want to say thank you to Ryan Rising for that profound and fascinating conversation we shared in his beautiful Berkeley backyard garden. Hopefully, uh, he reached a few of you folks out there in some kind of way, inspired you to see how you can get involved in making positive impact on people's lives in your community and beyond. Check out the Permaculture Action Network. Now, in the background, you are hearing a Carl Denson's Tiny Universe show. song is Fallen, otherwise known as the Barbecue Song, which is a fan favorite from the early days. Now, why am I on this Carl D. trip? Well, it was his 63rd birthday. They played the two-night run here in the Bay Area, and they really took it back to the glory days. It might have been one of the best shows I've heard from the modern era. Now, some of you listening who've been familiar with some of the work I've done through the years know that I've been covering Carl D. for the better part of two decades, um, ever since... You know, I saw him for the first time in 97, but really got my wig split at my first Jazz Fest in 2000. And uh, the original band, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe, or I should say the, the one that stayed together the longest in that 1.0 era, featured Ron Johnson on the bass, Ron Johnson on the bass, Brian Jordan on guitar, and mainstays who remain today, David Veith on keys. Chris Littlefield, my dear friend, on trumpet and flugelhorn. And these guys, I mean, they got after it playing like 200 plus shows a year. And they had a decidedly less blues, less rock, more R&B, more soul uh, bent to them in the early days. Uh, much more D'Angelo than Almond Brothers or Stones. And uh, that really spoke to me in a, a very profound way at that time in my life and uh, I chased that band around racked up over a hundred shows over the course of a decade plus and uh, chronicled the band for many of those years and several of appearances at festivals like Bear Creek Jazz Fest runs up and down the East Coast New York Boston DC Philly Baltimore so naturally when uh, they came back through here I was uh, excited to see them, but I, I won't say that they're at the top of my list of bands to see like they used to be. So I went in with a pretty casual attitude and was completely bowled over by how sick this gig ended up being. Uh, you can check out my words on Live for Live Music in a couple of days. Uh, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe live at the Fillmore in San Francisco. And I'm going to play the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe, Groove On. Groove On is a song that's been on the shelf for several years, but uh, Once Upon a Time in the Early Days was like the sought-after sexy chestnut of the set and was always uh, prefaced with Carl's words to the wise, a little Pigpen-esque rap that he would kick in the beginning of the song that in a nutshell basically let you know uh, fellas that you need to get yourself right before you holler whether that's looking good smelling good whatever it is and uh, Carl offered different versions of this same missive over and over again uh, before he dropped into the tune and it was something of 
humor and and I recall it fondly. So when he started in with that rap the other night, I still was like, there's no way they're going to do Groove On. But Zach Nager's back in the Tiny Universe and he was the drummer for a long stretch in the era I'm speaking of. And uh, I guess uh, the nostalgia hit Carl and he's like, you know what? We're going to bring back Groove On. And did they ever? And was it ever glorious? So thanks to the Tiny Universe for the kick down of the groove on and to commemorate that i am going to dig deep way back to 2002 uh, for a classic rendition of groove on by the tiny universe now i really wanted to pick the lenny kravitz version from jazz fest or any number of versions that i saw um, in new york city paradise rock club in boston etc however i decided to go with uh a seven minutes and change rendition from the Fillmore Auditorium in Denver in October of 2002, right smack dab in the middle of the glory days for Carl Denson's Tiny Universe and for Groove On. Uh, coming out of the Fallen barbecue song that we were just hearing, um, basically, in a nutshell, encapsulates why I love Carl Denson's Tiny Universe. So, I'm going to send you off episode 8 of the Up for Life podcast with the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Carl Denson's Tiny Universe. Groove on. And you've been listening to the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. When I got my groove on Alright fellas How the fellas doing tonight? Alright well this goes out to all the fellas in the hills This is called When I Got My Groove On Fellas And I think by now you know how to get your groove on So I want all the fellas to take a deep breath. And come on, come on, come on, come on. Fellas, make some noise. Fellas, make some noise. Fellas, make some noise. Now, ladies, scream. There's a difference. It's those dreamy eyes. Makes me wanna play to them or redefine. Yet there's a little way. You see, I I got my own thing. I'm working my thing on you. You got your own. But that thing is you can see me, I'll redesign. Move in one or two. You and me all the time. You got nothing to prove. I'm working hard, paying dues. My game is tight. I just might stay up all night. Maybe you're feeling it twice as nice. Cause I feel twice as strong. And I got my groove on. And I got my groove on. I got my groove on. And I got my groove on.
set your mind at ease Even giants With their heads in the clouds Fall down on the knees sometimes You see, I, I got my own thing I'm coming up hard and fast You got your own I know it's a blast I can reconfigure it I'm moving one or two A few degrees Hey yeah, I got a good dream I'm doing fine You and me all the time Even if you got nothing to prove I'm working hard, paying dues, drinking it, my game is tight. I just might stay up all night, maybe I'm feeling it twice as nice, cause I feel twice as strong, and I got my groove on. Oh, yeah, I got my groove on. I got my groove on. Thank you. 
Thank you, good night.